When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy, a Star Trek podcast told through the lens of leadership development. And now here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome, everyone. I really appreciate you joining me today. On this episode, we watch the eighth episode of the third season of The Next Generation, The Price. Troy is exhausted. She's all but just plopping into her quarters after a long day of work. She has a fun kind of pontificating moment against the replicator. She, she, just, she just wants chocolate. I would like a real chocolate sundae. Now, based on this and this alone... I call the replicator a fundamentally flawed technology. I mean, it's seriously going to restrict your meal options because of nutritional content. It's making food out of almost nothing. I'd hope. No, no. I pray. I'll pray to God, Allah, Shiva, Yahweh, Zeus, Horus, Ronald McDonald, that anybody that at this point in the 24th century, they can make food taste like like magic dancing on your tongue, but still give it the nutritional value of kale and whatever other garbage our bodies need. So, so full confession here, I really, I really enjoy eating like a lot. Okay. Back to Troy. She's just, she's just trying to unwind a little bit, you know, after a long day at work, oh God, take me away. we can all relate to that, right? Well, we can probably relate to what happens next, too. Picard hails her. Picard to Councillor Troy. What? Yes, Captain. And invites her to an informal social event. You know, the kind that's informal, but pretty much a required work function. Yeah. You see, the Barzans have discovered what appears to be the first stable wormhole ever. And it's about to appear. It opens up every 233 minutes, just like clockwork. God forbid I should miss my first look at the wormhole. The Barzans are selling the rights to the wormhole, and the negotiations will take place on Enterprise. We meet the Federation negotiator, Mendoza, and Leor of the Caldonians. The negotiator for the Chrysalians, Devanani Rall, introduces himself. Serenity now, and sanity later. The other negotiators hype up Rawl, saying that he's the best hired gun in the galaxy. We learn a little bit about the Barzans. This is their, their first appearance in Star Trek. 
They're not self-sufficient, and they hope that selling off their rights to the wormhole will, will bring them to that point. We also learn that their atmosphere isn't compatible with most life, so they wear kind of these adaptive devices to breathe when they're away from their planet. Riker comes in, he lets everybody know that a Ferengi delegation has arrived, and they want to participate too. They weren't invited, but Bhavani, the, the Barzan premier, she, she doesn't want to shut anyone out because, I mean, after all... More money, more money, more money. They beam in, and they get right to bloviating. Hey, that's a, that's a pretty fun word, bloviating. Use that more often. There's the leader, Damon Goss, along with Cole and Dr. Eridor. Goss just dumps a bag of gold on the table, says he'll beat anyone else's offer. Picard really shines here as the Ferengi just big-time wharf, treating him like he's a servant. Willie Chairs, I'm Captain Picard of the Enterprise. I am serving as host for these proceedings. Good. And see to it, we get some chairs. Let me explain. Fine, fine. Just have your Klingon servant get us some chairs. I'm in charge of security. Then who gets the chairs? I applaud the production team here. They made some really fun choices, but one also that, 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 that so many of us can relate to. After that little exchange, Picard leaves the room, waits for the door to close, and just sighs. You know that moment, don't you? When you just finished working or talking through what felt like the most petty or ridiculous thing. And you just have to breathe it out. Out with the bad. In with the good. Troy is in her office and she's hitting the old Google machine. Or, for us more security-minded people, the DuckDuckGo machine. She's learning just as much as she can about Rawl when, oops, <clears throat> awkward, Rawl shows up. He is super, super confident about the negotiations. And he asks Troy out for dinner. Here we get some kind of Creepy, super cringy pickup lines from Rawl. You never do leave the office. What? Shh, 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 shh. In her aid. He's kind of pretty aggressive here too, but 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 Troy seems to go along with it. Look, this episode came out in '89, and. I have some pretty strong thoughts about how Rawl interacted with Troy, but, but I'll just I'll just leave it with with what I said. It's, it's creepy, super cringy. But I mean, I mean, no, no. Full disclosure time here. Look, I I'm married to my best friend and the woman of my dreams, but that is not because I was some smooth operator. In fact, when I was young, I would say one of my superpowers was the ability to be completely oblivious on how to interact with women. So my question, specifically to the women listening, but but really, really anyone, does stuff like this work? Like awkwardly and semi-aggressively playing with your hair and talking to you like you're, you're, you're a kind of personified object? Is that attractive? Like with someone you just met? Now I'm guessing no, but I am also the exact opposite of an expert on these things. Eesh. Yikes, Star Trek. Data and Jordy are researching the wormhole. Mendoza is getting a bit of an advantage here, really. As the Federation negotiator, he gets to sit in on all the report outs. Data is going over the data the Barzan's unmanned probe had gathered. It went through and it came out deep in the Gamma Quadrant. It's about a centuries-long journey at Warp 9, according to Picard. 
Riker and Mendoza assess the negotiations while they're talking through the reports. They're not too worried as the Ferengi just don't have access to the resources the Barzian are looking for, but they both agree that Rawl is the real threat. Mendoza is impressed with Riker. An accurate observation. How did you recognize that? Well, he was the most comfortable one in the group. You must play poker, Commander. Poker? Is that a game of some sort? Commander Riker conducts master classes in poker. Picard interjects, and he and Riker are wildly skeptical about the stability of the wormhole. Data agrees. The Barzans sent a single unmanned probe, just one time. There just isn't enough data to confirm the value of the wormhole. So Riker suggests they send a team into it to check it out. Picard agrees, after they do a full sensor analysis, to send Data and LaForge in. The Ferengi, in the meantime, are up to no good. Ah. Just a moment of discomfort for a good cause, Damon. They, they really are just the cartoon-style villains in TNG, aren't they? Well, they're injecting Goss with a biological compound that'll take out one of the negotiators by causing an extreme allergic reaction, which is totally successful. Goss shakes hands with Mendoza, and he ends up in sickbay. He's out for the count, but should be better in a few days. You know, after the negotiations are all done. Rawl meets Troy in her quarters. She invites him in. He wastes no time. Before you know it, they're having drinks and... I haven't been able to stop thinking about you all day. Well, the scene, well, it goes on from there. More the Ferengi, Goss, he's in the ready room arguing with Riker and Picard. He's objecting to the mission that Data and LaForge are conducting. He says that they're going to send their own shuttle in because they don't trust the Federation to be forthcoming with any data they gather. As they leave, Picard, Picard assigns Riker to step in as the replacement for Mendoza and become the negotiator for the Federation. Riker has doubts about this, but Picard encourages him, saying that he has the base skills and he's got the instincts to be successful. And Mr. Mendoza will certainly agree. He's quite impressed by your natural instincts. Excuse me, sir, but those weren't natural instincts. Those were poker instincts. A card game doesn't exactly prepare me for this. Yes, the stakes are higher. But then, isn't that when the game gets interesting, Commander? Now, we all know that growth happens when we step outside of our comfort zones, right? If you always do the same things and you only stick to what you're good at, you're not actually going to grow or develop. At some point, you'll, you'll just be really good at that one thing that you always do. And hey, for some people, that might be just fine. But I don't think that's you. If you just wanted to be decent or, or even good at one thing, you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast. No, you. You want to grow and develop. And I'd imagine that's the case for most people serving on Enterprise as well. Let's take Riker here as an example. We're going to have um, a couple episodes of TNG in the future where he has opportunities to step outside of his comfort zone and he'll, he'll turn them down. I'm looking forward to looking more closely at those ones, but, but, but overall, especially up to this point, Riker has not been afraid to take on the unknown. He served as a con officer in his first posting, and then he moved on to serve on Beta Z in a diplomatic capacity. Then, when he moved to the Potemkin, he worked in the operations division. And finally, he landed his first XO position on the USS Hood. Each posting required different skill sets and provided different experiences. At this point, he's, he's well established as first officer of Enterprise. He likely gets through his day-to-day -day pretty easily. On the ship, he's given a lot of opportunities just, just through his position. 
So he and his supervisor have to be open for things outside the, the, the norm. And this, this is a perfect example. Picard sees an opportunity the Enterprise doesn't find itself in that often. A direct trade negotiation. I mean, they're often mediating or facilitating things like this, but it's rare that they have a direct stake. He's very aware of Riker's skills and abilities. He knows his strengths really well. So when this opportunity presents itself, he's quick to match Riker to the job. Riker, expectedly, resists. He's never done anything like this before. So Picard quickly justifies his choice by telling Riker how his skills match up to the negotiation. Because they've worked and established trust, Riker agrees. The piece, though, that they don't show, they don't even talk about, but there's an implicit belief and faith that Riker will have all the support he needs. I'm sure Picard has no intention of making this assignment and then leaving Riker on his own, right? If he runs into problems or if he has questions, Picard and the rest of the crew will be there to support him as he stretches his abilities. This is how people grow. It's how they develop. They take on real life, actual assignments that are just beyond their current skill and experience levels. And with support from their supervisor and their team, they get it done. LaForge and Data are heading into the wormhole. Their Ferengi counterparts, they're heading in as well. The shots in this scene show how even the flagship of the Federation, you know, the luxury yacht that is the Enterprise, <laughs> really cut some corners. I mean, Data is practically sitting in Geordi's lap. If you even have a hint of claustrophobia, seeing the two of them in their shuttle is almost unbearable. LaForge laments getting stuck in the Gamma Quadrant with the Ferengi, while Data shows a level of self-awareness, or, or lack thereof, that is, that is absolutely hilarious. There is a bright side, Geordi. You will have me to talk to. <laughs> Into the breach they go. Some high-quality, late 80s TV effects show the wormhole as we return to the negotiating table. Rawl is being helpful to Riker. If you don't understand something, I hope you won't be too embarrassed to ask me. Despite the Caldonians and Ferengi being at the table, the real back and forth is really between the two of them. And after that, we meet up with Troy and Rawl once again. They're talking about her Betazoid and her human responses to him. There's a little, little bit of foreshadowing here, kind of. You'll see. She shares just how special Riker is to her and, and how much his friendship means to her, despite their relationship once being much more than what it is now. Troy then picks up on a great social tactic Rawl is using. She asks, How come we're talking about me instead of you? There is nothing people like talking about more than themselves. So if you want to establish a positive relationship with them, ask questions that allow them to talk about themselves. There's kind of a, a weird psychology to encouraging people to talk like that. And I'd, I'd like to challenge you to try this. I challenge everyone that I mentor with this exercise and every single person that does it has the same result. They establish meaningful relationships and end up one of the more memorable people at the event. So here's the challenge. The next time you find yourself at a networking event or a meet and greet or some situation that puts a number of people that don't really know each other together, I want you to do nothing but ask questions. If someone asks you a question, quickly respond, but follow up immediately with a question of your own. And every question you ask 
has to let that person talk about themselves. Reveal very little about yourself. Don't tell your jokes. Don't tell your stories. Just ask questions. Oh, hey, it's nice to meet you. So what do you do? Oh, yeah? Well, how long have you been there? Do you have any cool stories about it? What's exciting to you? Oh, I see. You have an Oregon Ducks scarf. Have you ever been to a game? Let the conversation steer your questions. Be natural, right? But, but whatever you do, just keep asking. Even if they come back at you, yeah, I love the Ducks. We have season tickets. What about you? Never been to a game, but a big fan. Did you attend U of O? Tell me, what made you a fan? You see, you just turn it around. Without fail, you will be remembered and people will want to interact with you again. Often, the most memorable person at an event is the person that talked with everyone but said very little about themselves. Earlier, I said I married the woman of my dreams, but not, but not because I was a smooth operator, right? Well, in retrospect, though, maybe, maybe I was because I used, I used this technique. See, we're both musicians. Well, she's a musician. I'm a drummer, so, so do the math. We were working on an album back before we were dating. Now, for all the non-musicians out there, recording is a long and tedious process. As a drummer, I'm usually done with my tracks first. They're recorded as the, as the foundation of the rest of the track. And she, as a vocalist, is usually done last. That leaves a lot of time in between us recording where we're waiting on the bass, the guitars, whatever else has to get laid down. So we ended up spending some time together in the control room. Now I talk leadership a lot. And so in this case, I decided to put my money where my mouth was. And, and here's where we're all go ahead and I'll, I'll prove out my superpower for all of you. See, I strategically planned my interactions with her before arriving at the studio. I mean, I did that so I'd be prepared, you know, and have a lot of questions. I wanted to be prepared with questions to ask. I know, right? So romantic. Well, in my defense, though, these recording sessions can go like four, six, even more hours sometimes. So, so that's a lot of questions to ask. But I did it. For the whole recording session, I only asked her questions. I'd respond to her briefly and then flip it back into a question to her. And, 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 and hey, I mean, the proof, the proof is right in front of us. Years of marriage, a mortgage, a child. We even own a business together. Years later, she still brings that story up. She says that she left that recording session fascinated with me. She wanted more. You see, there is real power in asking questions and letting the other person talk just about themselves. I also remember a person that I mentored years ago. They were very much an introvert, and they were having, they were having a pretty hard time connecting with others in the workplace, and, and even in their personal life. Well, they took the challenge. At a parent's night for their child's Little League baseball team, he just asked questions and encouraged people to talk about themselves. Now, I actually reached out to him while prepping for this episode to see how he was. It was, it was about nine years ago from the time of this recording that he took the challenge. And he said, see, this is, this is the cool thing here. He said there are three families from that time that he and his family still, to this day, spend time with and stay connected to. So now, I want you to try it out. And let me know how it goes. I'm, I'm on all of the social media at Jeff T. Aiken. Just let me know how your interaction goes when you do nothing 
but ask questions and let other people talk about themselves. Rawl is still doing his thing, and Troy is really connecting with him. She's questioning why she's connecting, and this causes Rawl to share a really big secret. See, he's a quarter betazoid and has empathic powers. He said that he's learned to use it, but it also makes him feel isolated. No one else in his life can really relate to what he feels. That is, until he met Troy. Back to the 80s TV effects of the wormhole, and both shuttles emerge safely. But Data, Data's very concerned. You see, they're not in the Gamma Quadrant where they expected to be. Instead, they are all the way over in the Delta Quadrant. Then we get to... Oh, oh, it's, uh, yeah, it's this episode. Yeah, Crusher and Troy in jazzercise leotards and talking about Rawl. Really, really authentic conversation here. I mean, you know what's real when Crusher says, It was another fella. You know, I mean, because people say, say that all the time, right? Anyway, they basically agree that Troy feels good about her relationship with Rawl and she should lean into it. As if to put a point on the misogyny in this episode, we go to 10 Forward, where Damon Goss is ogling over different women and unsuccessfully trying to hit on them. Some people are still trying to work, and Rawl is in there talking with the Caldonian negotiator. He's positioning the negotiation in a way that makes the whole thing just seem unattractive to them. See, they're a scientific researching culture. They're not really into to the administrative duties that would go along with the wormhole. The subtle little musical cue when Leor says that he's been feeling trepidation about that. The cue leads us to believe that Rawl knows what he's feeling and is using that to pressure the Caldonians. We get some confirmation on that as Leor withdraws the Caldonian bid. Riker, Riker jumps on this and he tries to offer a trade between the Federation and the Caldonians to aid his bid. But then Leor drops a bomb. You see, he's already agreed to that deal, but with Rawl and for the Chrysalians. You either had very good instincts or a foreknowledge of the Caldonian withdrawal. Back in the Delta Quadrant, the Forge is seeing that there are unexpected changes in the wormhole, and he's trying to encourage the Ferengi to leave as soon as possible with them. The Ferengi continue their MO of big-timing them, and they're not going to leave. Data confirms that this end of the wormhole is not stable, and that if they don't return now, they will likely be stranded in the Delta Quadrant in their shuttle. Still, they don't listen. Idiots. So Jordy heads back into the wormhole. We then see the wormhole close, stranding the Ferengi just the way Data said it would happen. Now remember that. In a rare moment in 90s Star Trek, this little plot point will pay off at some point. Rawl is praising Riker's skill to Troy while kind of low-key cutting him down, too. She's starting to see through it all and straight up accuses him of unethical behavior. See, he doesn't tell people about his empathic abilities, and that gives him an unfair advantage. And then, and then he crosses a line. Well, I gained an advantage by using it with you. He didn't seem to mind that. He continues to defend his actions and his approach. She keeps pushing back. She says that, that she doesn't hide her empathy and that she uses it to help 
people. Well, he does hide it, and he uses it only to manipulate others. He raises a valid argument, though. Do you tell the Romulan that's about to attack that you sense that he may be bluffing? Or do you just tell it to your captain? And she responds that that is a matter of life and death. He agrees and says that he deals in property, and no one gets hurt. So he asks her which one of them has the bigger problem with ethics. Ethics. Wow. We are now we're not going to learn everything about ethics here in this podcast. I I don't think I can fit millennia worth of knowledge and debate into this one episode, but we will dive into it a little more in the in the command code section. But this short debate really demonstrates the differing viewpoints and interpretations of ethics and ethical behavior. You see they're both using the same tool, empathy or or, or an empathic ability but to very different ends and in very different ways. When we look at this, we're going to look at it through an ends justify the means lens. Back to 10 forward, Rawl approaches Riker. Looks like he's going to try with him what he did with the Caldonians. His approach, though, is not nearly as effective. He taunts Riker with the relationship that he's developing with Troy, but Riker just isn't having it. Much like Troy earlier said how much she values Riker and his friendship, he says the same thing here. If you can bring happiness into Deanna's life, nothing would please me more. This is such a subtle and incredible look at, well, at true love. Two people that have full respect for each other, care about each other completely, and want nothing but the best for each other. In an episode fraught with problematic relationships, this moment really shines. True friendship and a deep, deep love. Riker, the consummate poker player, capitalizes on the misread by Rawl. It's the first bad play I've seen you make. And then he drives the stake even further. Except you don't have any values beyond the value of today's bid, that is. Personal values. What matters to you? He basically says that Rawls' lack of personal values will cost him in the long run, even, even if he ends up winning this particular deal. Goss is back on his ship. He's upset, and he accuses the Barzan of signing a secret agreement with the Federation. So he fires missiles at the wormhole to destroy it. But Worf is able to shoot them out of the sky. This prompts a red alert and pulls Riker to the bridge. This leaves Rawl alone with Bhavani so he can continue his pitch that the Federation are aggressive and will bring more disarray than order to the Barzan if they agree to their bid. This fight seems to really be between the Federation and the Ferengi. (laughs) Now it seems unconscionable that your wormhole is being used as a pawn in their power struggle. Here we see the ethical dilemma posed by Rawl and Troy put into action. Damon Goss is intent on destroying the wormhole, but Troy can tell he's lying, and he doesn't mean to do what he says. The subtle throwback to the example that Rawl used with the Romulans. Now, Rawl and Bavani enter the bridge. Picard allows Rawl to address Goss. He shares that he and the Barzan have reached an agreement, and the Chrysalians have won the rights to the wormhole. Another sale, Mr. Costanza. Chalk me up on the big board. He then offers the Ferengi free access to it if they stand down, and Goss agrees. Then Troy addresses Bhavani, but asks if Rawl wants to say something first. Excuse me, Premier, there's something you should know. I'm sorry, was there something you wanted to say? She explains there was no 
tension between Rawl and Goss. I sense no tension from you or Goss. What? I, I was tense. I was ready to blow it up. What? I strongly protest. Screen off. It was as though you were performing a scene for all of us. Then, she shares Rawl's secret of being part Betazoid and says that this whole incident was staged just to strengthen the Chrysalian bid. Just then, LaForge and Data emerge from the wormhole. They report that this end of the wormhole is stable, but the other end is not. It's a dry well, Captain. So Riker congratulates Rawl on his win. After all that, Troy welcomes Rawl into her quarters. He says that he had no choice as the Barzan were ready to go with the Federation. She disagrees, and, and he says that her actions have forced him to take a really hard look at himself. I don't like what I see. He pleads with her to join him as he leaves, saying that, that she could help him. She could, she could be his conscience. And Troy comes back with the perfect response. I already have a job as counselor. Yeah. The episode ends with Troy reflecting on everything that has happened. So much potential. I mean, there is real potential in this episode. It has cool sci-fi elements like the wormhole and the fact that the galaxy is officially divided into the Alpha, Beta, Gamma, and Delta quadrants. This is the first time that that was ever said and confirmed in all of Star Trek. It has a high-stakes negotiation with a lot of different players, and it has a love story. But even with all that, I mean, it, it pretty much failed on all points. Well, that's not... That's not totally fair. The wormhole stuff was pretty cool and interesting. I mean, up to this point in Star Trek, they, they really hadn't explored the concept of wormholes all that much. So to find one that appears to be stable, yeah, that's pretty cool. Honestly, the best part of this episode, aside from the deep bond between Riker and Troy and, and Picard's just total lack of patience for Damon Goss, is the setup for the third season Voyager episode, False Prophets. <laughs> But, but more on that one in a future episode. I think I read a comment that Marina Surtees made at a convention once about this episode. She said something like, they finally had a decent love story for Deanna, and then they screwed it all up, or something like that. And yeah, that, that pretty much sums up this one. A great coach I worked with once said, potential only counts for so much. At some point, well, at some point, you just suck. Command codes verified. During the episode, we talked about the art of asking questions and encouraging others to talk about themselves. I, I simply cannot overstate the power of this strategy. In addition to the challenge I gave, I also want to encourage you, I want you to apply this in your one-on-one -on -one meetings with your teams. Give them the floor. Let them talk about themselves. When you listen, it is amazing what you will learn. We also talked about moving outside of your own comfort zone as a development tool and, and encouraging this with your staff as well. In this episode, though, the real lesson is on ethics. Now, I do not by any means want to present myself as an expert on ethics at all. However, as a leader, Behaving in an ethical manner is critical for you to earn trust and to be able to represent your teams and your organization. Ethics are, most simply, the study of what is right and what is wrong in human conduct. 
ethics are similar to morals, but ethics will have a, a reasoning applied to them. Alex Andrews George of Clear IAS says that being moral is about adhering to what is described by society or religion, for example, while being ethical is about figuring out what is right by applying principles and considering all the complexities involved. So ethical behavior is determining how to behave in a morally correct manner, like actually applying those morals to a situation. In this episode, the question of ethical behavior is brought up in terms of Rawls' empathic abilities. He can sense the emotions of those around him, and this gives him a tremendous advantage in dealing with other people. I mean, we can all determine the emotions of others just like he describes through social cues, body language, verbal cues, and, and, and stuff like that. But he has the added ability, the added sense, in that he can actually feel feel what they are feeling. Troy shares this ability and she uses it in her role as ship's counselor. I mean, it could be assumed that her ability uniquely suits her to that position, but Rawl uses it for an edge in negotiating. He senses, for example, when Leor is having second thoughts on the process and he uses that knowledge to encourage him to withdraw. One could easily argue, and Rawl does, that this is simply his job. Find an advantage, and exploit it. It just so happens the advantage he found was done so through his abilities, and no one at the table knows he has those abilities. So let's look at this situation in two other ways. First, as if Rawl does not have any extraordinary empathic abilities at all, and second, as if Leor knew that Rawl had extraordinary abilities. Okay, Rawl is a skilled negotiator. He has the skills necessary to represent his client's best interests. One of those skills is the ability to read people and adjust his strategy accordingly. In this situation, from what we saw, Leor was a full participant in the negotiations. There was nothing that indicated he was having second thoughts. So Rawl continues with his strategy, but may, I mean, he might possibly sense the, something is a little off with Leor. If he happened to sense that from what we see and know, he would have to have spent a lot more time prodding and asking questions. And that would most likely happen at the table with everyone else present. So as he's learning Leor's trepidation, everyone else has the same opportunity to see it as well. If it comes out that he's really not into it, Others may have the opportunity to negotiate the side deal that Rawl was ultimately able to do in the episode itself. So with no special abilities, he could still have had the same outcome, but others would have had a competitive chance to do the same. Now, let's assume his empathic abilities are well known. People go into negotiations with him knowing that he can feel their emotions. Leor, knowing this, decides he still wants to negotiate for the rights so the Caldonians maybe can set up a sub-agreement with someone else for the administrative tasks around the wormhole. So Leor adjusts his strategy, keeps his emotions in check. He likely remains competitive through the process. So being open and honest about his abilities could lead to an entirely different outcome. In all fairness, though, maybe Leor just isn't very good at his job, and, and, and Rawl is still able to take advantage of his feelings, but, but then that's on Leor. And honestly, the, the rest of the negotiators, they know what they're up against, so they'd better be bringing their best and watching closely for these situations. But this examination doesn't necessarily 
prove his behavior is unethical. It really just shows that there are other possibilities. And the stakes here are, are, are rights to a wormhole. They're, they're economic consequences. Morally, you could say that, that, that no one is being hurt. There's no one in danger. Now, you could question whether or not this is a form of stealing or theft, but the fact that this is something to explore and question really shows how this is, it's in that gray area. But his choices and his own explanation demonstrate the ethical standing of his choice to hide his empathic abilities. While having dinner with Troy, he says, I used them on you. And he did that so he could have a physical relationship with her. Whoa, now this, this is a whole different ball game. I hope, I hope that, I hope there isn't any gray in this one for you. When you are taking advantage of someone, specifically manipulating their emotions for an outcome like this, yeah, nothing moral about that and clearly demonstrating unethical behavior. But Jeff, you say, she still seemed to like him, you say, yeah. Maybe she did, maybe, and we'll never know, but maybe he was the perfect match for her. Why won't we know? Well, Rawl believes the end justifies the means. I imagine you've heard that phrase before. It basically means that the outcome justifies what you did to make it happen. So as an extreme and well, kind of fun example, let's just say that you work for a small local record store and you're about to get bought out by a huge chain of record stores. You don't want that to happen. So one night when you're closing, you decide to take the day's receipts and head to the casino. You play some craps, bet it all on red, whatever. You double your money and you save the store. Hooray, right? But you stole money from your employer and you put everything at risk. Does the fact that you bet well make it okay that you did that? Did the ends, saving the store, justify the means, stealing money? Now, according to Machiavelli's The Prince, yes. Yes, it does make it okay. But do we live in a Machiavellian society? It's a society full of narcissists, scheming, dishonesty, manipulation. No, no, we don't. Though, though we certainly do have our moments now, don't we? Now Machiavelli says, Whoever desires to found a state and give it laws must start with assuming that all men are bad and ever ready to display their vicious nature whenever they may find occasion for it. Yikes. Now there are a number of examples in society of us saying the ends do not justify the means. August 7th, 2007, Barry Bonds hit a record-breaking 756th home run. Awesome, right? Nope. Dude was on steroids, or performance-enhancing drugs as we came to know them. He will forever have an asterisk next to that record. There is, of course, Deflategate, where the Patriots had game balls deflated during the 2014 AFC Championship game. Yay, they won and they went to the Super Bowl. But quarterback Tom Brady was suspended. The team was fined a million dollars. The November 1990 episode of Saved by the Bell, Jesse's Song, tells the heartbreaking story of Jesse Spano, overachiever and straight A student, using caffeine pills to give her an edge in her studies. I'm 
Does her perfect report card justify drug use and risking her health? We can all likely agree that no, no, it does not. This is a great episode, by the way, and a real defining moment in my adolescence. I think we can all agree, though, also, that if we did live in a Machiavellian society, this would all be okay. Bonds would be a hero and likely have gotten a parade, right? Tom Brady would still be with the Patriots and we'd see him as a role model. And Jesse Spano would have been given accolades, scholarships, and recognition for pushing herself further than anyone else. So Rawl wins the negotiation and he temporarily gets the girl. I guess your mother was right. You never could compete with Lloyd Braun! Does that justify keeping his abilities secret in the world of Star Trek? In, in our culture and society? No, no, I sure don't think so. And neither does he. In a moment of redemption, at the end of the episode, he willingly goes to take accountability for buying a dry well, and he commits to doing some much-needed self-reflection. Good for him. So what are your thoughts on ethical behavior? Look, again, I am by no means an expert and I absolutely do not have the credentials to speak from a place of authority on them. Also, and I'm, I'm being completely serious here, am I being overly critical of how Rawl interacted with Troy? I mean, especially at the beginning of the episode. Is Rawl a... Let me know. I'm on all the social media. At Jeff... T. Aiken. Jeff, T as in talk about themselves, A-K-I-N. And can you help me out? Look, if, if you've enjoyed the Starfleet Leadership Academy or learned anything from it, please tell a friend, a colleague, or someone that you feel can benefit from hearing about it. All right, now let's see what we're going to be watching next time. the cause episode 22 of the fourth season of deep space nine brush up on your maquis storylines for this one a lot happens here i cannot wait so until then ex astra scientia Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together, we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast. Electric acid.